On this episode of the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman, you'll hear a talk given at the 2021 Gospel Reformation Network Conference by teaching elder Fred Greco. The GRN's purpose is to cultivate healthy Reformed churches in the Presbyterian Church in America. I received permission from the GRN, of which I am a member of their general council, to use this audio here. Fred, like myself, was a ruling elder before he was a teaching elder. This talk is entitled, Rediscovering the Genius of Biblical Presbyterianism, but it's really about being a churchman with specific focus for ruling elders. I'll put the link to the video in the show notes if you'd rather watch it on GRN's YouTube channel, and you can find all the GRN resources at gospelreformation.net. I hope you enjoy. Well, this is a real privilege for me. I get to introduce to you a good friend. Uh, Fred Greco is the senior pastor of Christ Church PCA in Katy, Texas. He's remarkable in that he not only has a degree in the classics, a degree in law, but also a degree in theology. Uh, Fred serves the PCA well by helping us know how to do the process of church government. He serves our denomination with distinction as the chairman of the Standing Judicial Commission. You might pray for Fred as he helps bring the PCA together to do the polity work of the denomination. I don't know anyone who does it quite as well as Fred. Fred is also a resource to you. His knowledge of the law, uh, both civil and, uh, and sacred, is a remarkable blessing to the PCA. Uh, he has uh, helped our church many times think through complicated legal and, and uh, church matters, and we're grateful for him. Uh, Fred also has a heart for the church, and he particularly has a heart for China. He serves on the board of a Reformed seminary, and uh, many men in this room Fred has recruited to go preach and teach in the churches of China. We're so grateful for him in doing that. He's also a professor, a visiting professor at RTS Houston, uh, as well as a faithful husband and father. Fred, come teach us a little bit about the genius of Presbyterianism. Thank you, Mel. It is indeed a great pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, I hope that you are still uh, active and awake as the last and the least of your speakers is here for you this morning. Um, I wanted to, uh, to thank John for not having me speak after Harry. That was a pleasure. But just after Kim. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. And, and you'll see that, that I get to preach from the kitty team. So... Uh, to be able to do that. But this is not really a sermon, it is more of an address. I want to speak to you a bit about the government of the church. I was given by John, not from my own mind, the best title of our conference, Rediscovering the Genius of Biblical Presbyterianism. Now that is a mouthful and it is wonderful. And so I want us to think a little bit about Presbyterianism and the church because it's something that should be important to each and every one of us here today. Whether we're pastors or elders or lay people or volunteers, if we're Christians, we're a part of the church. You really don't get a choice. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, he makes you a part of his bride. And so we want to serve uh, his bride well. So. While we are in our process this morning here of rediscovering the genius of biblical Presbyterianism, it seems to me that 
we need to look to the scriptures just as an overview about what this means and, and how we can employ church government to the benefit of our people. So I want to start by grounding Presbyterianism in the soil of the Bible. Now, on the one hand, this is far more difficult than, say, for example, studying the doctrine of the atonement or inerrancy or even baptism because much of what our doctrine of the church is is derived from principles in the Bible. There is no New or Old Testament book of ordering the church. It is simply something that we derive from biblical principles. We can even see this in the ordination vows that elders make in the PCA. We, are, we vow to believe the scriptures, and we vow to receive and adopt our confessional standards. But we vow to approve the form of government as in conformity with the general principles of the Bible. And so this requires us to do a little bit of spade work. There is no proof text that I can pull out for you to say, this is how you do Presbyterianism. But this doesn't mean that the doctrine of the church is unimportant. It doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't speak to it. And what we see in the scriptures throughout the Old and the New Testaments is rule in the church by elders. Now, that's just an English translation of the word Presbyterian or presbyter or the Greek presbyteros. That means an elder. And so we take our form of government name directly from the rule of elders in the scriptures. We can go, I think, all the way back to the days of Genesis. There's a story that you might not first think of when we talk about church government, and that is when Abraham sends his servant to get a wife for Isaac. What does he do? He sends a servant and, the word is, elder in his household on a most important task to go and find a wife for his son. Now, this is not just premarital arrangement. Remember, the promise of God depends upon the line of Isaac. And so, Abraham sends a trusted governor and ruler in his family to see this accomplished. As we turn the pages of the scripture to Exodus, we see the church transitioning from a family to a nation. And Moses is told to gather the elders of the people together before he goes to speak to Pharaoh. And these same elders are the ones who are gathered together as the Passover meal is distributed and eaten. And they stand before Moses as a group when he strikes the rock at Horeb. And finally, in Exodus 19, they are the ones, the scriptures say, that Moses first brings the law of God to. The elders of God's people serve as representative governors in God's church. In Numbers chapter 11, the Lord tells Moses at a time of complaint by the people and of controversy, one of many instances during the wilderness wandings, this particular one is a complaint by Israel that they're not getting enough meat. And the Lord tells Moses, go and gather up all of the elders, and I will speak to them, and they will speak to the people. 
Then in the days of Joshua, Moses' successor, we see over and over again these groups of elders leading God's people, both in battle, in decision-making, and most notably in the renewal of the covenant in Joshua chapter 24. Now, none of this is unique. In fact, as Israel goes through great changes in civil government from the days of the judges to the days of Ruth to the establishment of the theocratic kingdom, even in the times leading up and during the exile, we read of elders leading God's church. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel speak of the elders as God's gift to the church. It is always elders leading God's Samuel Miller, the great theologian of Princeton, reminds us that at the time the synagogue system was adopted, it is evident that the plan of conducting government by means of a body of elders was universal through all the land of Judea up to the time of the Savior's advent. And so it should be no surprise to us that when we see Christian churches established in the New Testament, that elders are present. And so as good Presbyterians, we go, for example, to Acts chapter 6 to see the original distinction made between the apostles, the first elders, and deacons. Or we could go to Acts chapter 15 and see that Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem by the leaders of their church, their elders for the purpose of having the broader church consider a theological controversy regarding circumcision and the doctrine of salvation. Now the church, through its elders, made a determination about the controversy, and then they appointed men to take that decision not just back to the church at Antioch, but also to Syria and Cilicia, and presumably all other places where the church was found. And so all of this biblical data was not unimportant to our forefathers. I trust that all of, in this, all of us in this room know about the Westminster Confession of Faith and catechisms. Many of us even know about the Westminster Directory of Worship. But do you know that the Westminster Divines also produced a form of government? In it, they did a typical study of the biblical text, and they laid out their understanding of the governing of churches. They understood that the church, singular, in Jerusalem, could not have been one single congregation. After all, there were too many preachers. There are a dozen apostles and others who had come to know the faith. And there would have been too many congregants. Thousands were saved in Jerusalem. And so that church singular is represented by individual congregations in Jerusalem. So we have Presbyterianism found in the book of Acts where individual congregations come together to be a part of one church. And this should not surprise us because Jesus did not come to establish his churches. He came to establish his church. We are all connected one to another. And so the divines drew the principle that believers, when they cannot meet conveniently in one place, it is lawful and expedient that they should divide into distinct congregations. 
But in each instance, in Jerusalem, in Ephesus, and probably even in Corinth, they were, these congregations were referred to corporately as the church in the city. In these churches, elders were charged with governing God's people so that all things would be done, yes, you guessed it, decently and in order. We see this in Acts chapter 20 in Ephesus, and we see it explicitly in 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I think when many of us look at this text, we make proper application of that to the local congregation, that pastors and elders are to shepherd the people of God that are in their midst, that they are to conduct oversight, and not to do that by compulsion, but willingly serving the congregation. But I would put it to you that what Presbyterianism teaches us is that that principle is true not just in a local denomination, not local congregation, but in a city, in a regional area, in a country, in fact, in the world. That same principle of shepherding applies to our government. Now, we may view these matters as being something indifferent, that it doesn't really matter whether we're Presbyterians or Congregationalists or Episcopalians, as long as we are Christians. And in one sense, they are. They're certainly not as important as the deity of Christ, or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, or salvation. But that is a far cry from saying that church government is unimportant. Our forefathers took the application of the Bible to the governing of the church very seriously. Almost all of us here know and have read Calvin, Hodge, Warfield, and other great theologians. But how many of you have spent time with Samuel Miller and his Presbyterianism? How many of you have read Witherspoon and his distinctive doctrines and the polity of Presbyterianism? And I'm here to tell you this morning, if you do not have a copy of F.P. Ramsey's commentary on the PCUS Book of Church Order, you need to get it this morning. There's good news. It's free online. Our form of government has been established with few changes since the 1800s. Wayne Sparkman at the Historical Center has done the church a great service showing the continuity of our government through various drafts, changes, and commentary. If you wonder why our government sets forth certain principles, certain regulations, then you need to study to see how they have come about. You will find that even the simplest of rules have biblical principles at their core. To many of the men in the PCA, 
think that our BCO is a pragmatic amalgamation of rules and regulations that do not reflect the biblical principles of the life of the church. How many, of t- how many times have you heard the joke about the three-ring binder that is the BCO so it can be easily changed? I can tell you that I get asked regularly if I hold my morning devotions in the book of church order. Dr. Strain reminded us yesterday that the danger of not taking our confession seriously enough is a real problem, and that men who are examined and criticized because they say they do not have differences with our standards are problematic. But my experience is something even more troubling. Men, both those already ordained and those being examined, speak as if it makes them more pious and more biblical to be ignorant of the principles of church government. I don't want to waste my time with that, is their cry. I've got more important things of ministry to take care of. Now this is short-sighted at best. I preach, I teach, I exhort, I encourage, but I do none of these things in a vacuum. I do them for the church, for the people of God, for those whom Christ has bought with his blood. I am a churchman. It is the most important designation that I have. That is because my calling is to serve the church. Doctrine is not just for books. Teaching is not for fame or reputation. The churchman exists for the benefit of God's people. He labors so that they may see Jesus. So that they would be equipped to follow Jesus. To borrow from Pastor Reader's Analogy last evening, the churchman is the player manager on the baseball team. He gives his efforts and is not only directly involved in ministry, he trains and coaches others to be involved in ministry as well. If you have been called by God to be an elder, that is your responsibility. If you have been set apart by the laying out of hands. It is not so that you can have an easier time or so that you can get your way in the church. It's so you can follow your Savior in serving rather than being served. If we lose this biblical vision, the vision that Peter set forth for us, we become unfit for office. Because that leads us to asking what we want about our rights rather than about what Jesus has commanded us to do and how we can sacrifice for his bride, the church. So I want you to be committed, committed to serve Jesus, to serve his people. Our government is for the building up and the blessing of the church. And Presbyterianism is uniquely suited to serve that purpose. Now, 
What is the genius of Presbyterianism? Thomas Dwight Witherspoon, a 19th century PCUS minister, sets forth five principles of Presbyterian government that I believe not only describe Presbyterianism, but give us insight into how the biblical principles of elder rule are for the good and well-being of the church. And if you're not willing to take my recommendation about Witherspoon, please take the recommendation of my dear friend, Dr. Guy Waters. Witherspoon gives us five principles. The first, is that church power is vested not in officers of any grade or rank, but in the whole corporate body of believers. That sounds odd coming from a Presbyterian, doesn't it? We don't talk much about the congregation. What does your congregation actually even vote on in your churches? I know that Oftentimes, I'll get people who will ask me a question or tell me that they need to have their congregation approve the budget, and I remind them that under the Book of Church Order, a congregation does not approve a budget. It is the session's job. But that doesn't mean that the power of Christ's church is not derived from those whom Jesus has purchased. And the second principle that Witherspoon sets forth is similar. He says that this power, although vested in the people, is not administered by them immediately, but through a body of officers chosen by them and commissioned as their representatives to bear rule in Christ's name. Now, this acknowledges the origin of the authority of elders. It does not come from themselves comes from Christ. The invaluable principle is that Jesus is the king and head of his church. He is represented in the church by those whom the congregation have seen to display and meet the standards that Jesus has set for elders. You need to remember, as elders, that you are not in control. This should humble us. Jesus is the king of his church. And so there is a principle that has been held sacred that neither ministers nor elders can be forced upon a congregation. Only the choice of the people as guided by the Holy Spirit, just as we see in Acts chapter 6, only in that way can a man be clothed with office. Witherspoon's third principle is this, that the whole administration of government in the church has been committed to a single order of officers, and that the minister in our church courts has no more authority than the ruling elder. Now, this sets forth the relationship between elders who rule and elders who labor in preaching and teaching. They are of one order. This harkens back to the elders of the Old Testament who were divided amongst the priests and other leaders. This is the famous parody of elders. It is not established to make men feel good or to be diverse. It follows the pattern laid out in the Bible. Jesus has called you to this ministry. He does not need you. He doesn't need anyone else. But that's not why he's called you. And Presbyterianism reminds us 
that we are a team of elders who follow the orders of Jesus. The fourth distinctive principle of Presbyterianism is that these presbyters rule not singly, but jointly in regularly constituted assemblies or courts. No elder can take to himself the authority of rule. Imagine if a single elder could decide that someone should not take the Lord's Supper, or that certain teaching was an error. Elders have real authority, but it is exercised jointly with other elders. The scriptures tell us that in an abundance of counselors, there is wisdom. This is supremely practical because we need each other. We each bring different gifts and experiences and knowledge. It is no coincidence that God has laid forth the government of his church in this way. There should be no dictators in Presbyterianism, whether they are official ones, as in the Episcopal system, or unofficial ones, as in a congregational system often. But let me also remind you that the church will not collapse without you. The last distinctive principle of Presbyterianism is that these church courts are so subordinated to one another that a question of government or discipline may be carried by appeal or complaint or review from a lower court to a higher court, representing a larger number of congregations until every part of the church is, through this due subordination, brought immediately under the supervision and control of the whole. You see, even courts themselves are subject to accountability. Our standards tell us that synods and councils may err and often have erred. Our own system of civil courts is modeled after the Presbyterian system. Accountability leads to care and concern for the truth. It provides an avenue for solving conflict. This is central to Presbyterianism. Now, a few practical applications of our form of government. There were debates that raged in the 19th century, principally between Hodge and Thornwell, as to whether or not ruling elders were essential to the presbytery. That is, whether a presbytery could meet if only teaching elders, pastors, ministers were present. And I think our form of government that we have received from the Southern Presbyterian Church wisely determined that both orders of elder, ministers, and ruling elders are necessary to church courts. We see this in, throughout our polity. Virtually everything that we do as members of the PCA is divided in some form of committee or commission or organization that is divided equally between ruling and teaching elders. The Standing Judicial Commission, on which I have served for more than a decade, is 24 elders, 12 teaching, 12 ruling. And as I have sat in deliberations over and over again, I have been struck by the wisdom of this organization. There are a few of us, like myself, who are ministers and at the same time repenting lawyers. But there are also wise lawyers, and those who have studied church law 
among our ruling elders. And they bring wisdom and a perspective that is necessary for the governing of the church. And so this means that ruling elders must participate in the church. Let me say it again. If you love to speak about the parity of elders, you must serve the church as a ruling elder. It must be in a spirit of unity and cooperation. If I could, let me ask, if you are here this morning as a ruling elder in the PCA, would you please stand? What a blessing. This has to be at least 30% of our conference. Now, how do we need to participate? We need to remember that participation in the courts of the church is threefold. We have congregations, we have presbyteries, and we have the General Assembly. The presbytery is actually the root court of our form of government. That's why we're Presbyterians. And that is because the presbytery has the assignment of oversight for pastoral ministry. Ministers are credentialed, examined at the presbytery. The presbytery is to encourage, to exhort, and to help churches in their region. But if we are to be elders worthy of our calling, we have to participate in our local congregations, in our presbyteries, and at the General Assembly. And that means, brothers, rolling up your sleeves. If I can say something controversial, Serving the church does not mean rolling into the General Assembly site the day before and attending half of the sessions. It means serving on committees in your presbytery, at the General Assembly, and even in your local church. I often joke with people that at the General Assembly level, I have secretaried about everything. I've served on review of records from sessions. I've served on committees to our uh, Ridge Haven and retirement and benefits. And I've served in other ways as well. Find ways to be involved. You may say to yourself, well, I can't be on overtures this year. I can never get elected to overtures. Fine. Go to the committee on MTW or MNA or RBI. Meet other elders. Get to know them. Be a churchman. Ministers. Presbytery and General Assembly is not an opportunity for you to catch up with seminary buddies. If you have ruling elders who have made the sacrifice to participate in the courts of the church, not on the clock, but off the clock, on vacation days, I know whereof I speak. I served about a decade as a ruling elder in our denomination. You need to make the effort to introduce your ruling elders to other ministers, to other elders, to explain to them what is going on, why we are doing this, why this man said that, why we are voting on this, why am I confused, what are we supposed to do? Don't leave them to their own devices. Your job is to train them up to be a churchman so that they can train others up to be churchmen. A third application, and I hope Dr. Reeder is noticing, we've talked about parity, we've talked about participation, and now we're going to talk about patience. So, I have to do this with three or four weeks advance. I can't do this on the fly. 
The culture in which we serve is one of a desire for quick change and results. We as elders in the church need to have a long view of ministry and the church. I'll give you just one example. I had the privilege during the pandemic in God's providence, I had determined before we knew what COVID was that I was going to preach through Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. And it's interesting because one of the things I do before I begin a series is I try to see which other preachers have preached through a book just to see how many sermons they take and where they divide the text. And I could really only find one minister who preached through the entire book of 2 Corinthians at least easily on the internet. It's the wonderful pastor and minister who's now retired, Jeff Thomas. But as we went through this, you may recall that 2 Corinthians is Paul's defense of the ministry, and it's his defense of the ministry in the face of a church that he has planted, that he has given his life for, and that is all chock full of problems. It's a mess. You know, the session at Corinth wishes they had the PCA's problem. And so, problems of every sort, sexual problems, problems of pride, problems of eschatology, problems of doctrine, problems of authority, problems of racism, all chock full in Corinth. As you read through that book, do you see how Paul deals with the Corinthians? He goes and he comes to them, and he advises them, he warns them, he encourages them. And then he sends a letter to them, advising them, pointing the way to them, pointing them to Jesus. And then he sends delegates to them, reminding them that he sent a letter and that he's been to them, reminding them of the same things. And then he makes yet another trip to exhort them sharply, to bring them back onto the path. And then, as he prepares to make yet a third trip, he sends another letter reminding them over and over again he didn't say, I'm not wasting my time with you fools. There's plenty of other churches I can deal with. No, he's patient with them. He knows that they need to grow in Jesus Christ. And yet Paul is optimistic about the church at Corinth, not because their problems are easy, but because he knows that they have Jesus and the Holy Spirit to equip them to deal with their problems. Do you know that we do too? There's a quip that I often make to people. Do you know how we discern the leading of the Holy Spirit in the PCA? We take a vote. That's what we do. Now, are we always right? Have we always interpreted the Holy Spirit and his leading properly? No, we don't always interpret the text of Scripture properly. But we trust that if we are erring, if we have gone astray, that the Spirit will bring us back. And he does so through elders. There is a saying that is not from a churchman, but I think it is appropriate in this context. Most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. Isn't that true of your ministry in the local church? Here's a secret. It's true in your presbytery too. It's true in the PCA too. 
Now, our fourth application, continuing in our vein, is piety. Without the characteristics of elders in 1 Timothy and in Titus, everything is in vain. What Dr. Beakey spoke about yesterday is absolutely true. I guarantee you that we cannot create enough rules to save the church from dishonest and wicked men. It can't be done. We have to be Christians. We have to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. We have to have leaders that are called by God. And I'm sure that you've had opportunity to preach on this dozens of times. But do you notice that the qualifications for elder are overwhelmingly ones of character? About anger, and about our actions, and about our family life. And so if we are going to serve the church, we must be men of piety. Fifthly, perpetuation. What are you doing today to train the next generation of elders? I don't know about you, but I'm hoping that if the Lord tarries, I will be a delegate to the 78th General Assembly of the PCA. And I hope that I'm accompanied by at least one of my sons you see, we need to train the young people in our church, the younger men who have young families in our church, to take over the leadership of the church. Brothers, you are not going to live forever. And so you need to pass on this love for the church to the next generation. At the risk of embarrassing one of my sons a bit, I had an opportunity several years ago there was a church in our presbytery that had just gone through a difficulty. Their pastor left after some conflict with their session. It turned out that most of the session wound up leaving afterwards. The people were in some disarray, and there was a sharp division in the congregation about next steps forward. Does that sound familiar? And so they called me and said, would you drive over on a Sunday, two hours, to moderate our congregational meeting in which we are going to try to establish the parameters for a pulpit committee. Not, not elect the pulpit committee. Establish the parameters for the pulpit committee. And being a churchman, I said, surely if my elders are willing for me to be out of the pulpit this Sunday morning, I would be glad to. And I was getting ready to get in the car and drive the few hours, and my son said to me, Dad, would you like company on the ride? And I said, sure, I'm going to spend four hours in the car. That sounds like a good time. And so we drove, and we were with the church, and I preached, and afterwards we had a congregational meeting. And it was a doozy. I don't know how many of you have the latest edition of Robert's Rules. I do. I pre-ordered it. It's, it's the kind of guy I am. And so it was one of these meetings where I'm having to use my traffic cop skills because there is emotion and then there is a substitute, and then there is an amendment to the main motion, and then there's an amendment to the substitute, and someone tries to raise a friendly amendment, and what do I say? There's no such thing as a friendly amendment. <laughs> Sit down. And there was back and forth and back and forth, and then there was an amendment to the substitute, and everybody's trying to, to and I'm repeating where we are and where we're going and what we're voting on, and there's this hand in the back of the room 
way back in the back bench. And I look, and it's my son. <laughs> and I said, yes. And he said, I don't know if I can do this, but I think I have a point of order. Now, that warms a Presbyterian pastor's heart. <laughs> David said yesterday that he had the nerdiest talk. He doesn't. It's this one. But, but David, we, we don't prefer the term nerd. We prefer the term wonk. So, so I said, all right, I'll hear it. And he said, well, it seems to me there was an amendment to the substitute that is of the same effect as the main motion. So really, it's not in order. They're trying to make the two things the same. If the mover of the amendment wants this, they could just vote for the main motion. And I said, first... Yes. <laughs> and then second, well taken. And we pushed on. And so I delight to see men involved in the work of the church. Some of you may notice that during General Assembly, it's, it's kind of my Super Bowl, that I'm there and I'm tweeting where I am and wh which microphone I'm at, and, and there's a constant rush of people coming over asking this question, where are we at, what's coming up, what's gonna vote, and, and I love it, I'm in my element. And it's because I love to see people involved. They're not sleeping, they're not out in the hall, they're not at the baseball game. They're here to serve the church. Do you have that kind of passion for the church? Pass it on. I've been serving the church now as a ruling or teaching elder for 25 years. When I started, I was often the youngest man in the room. I was ordained as a ruling elder at the ripe age of 28. And the first assembly that I came to was held right here at Briarwood PCA. I got in a minivan with my wife and two toddlers, and we drove from Cleveland, Ohio to Birmingham. And we did the work of the church. My wife loves the church. She's come with me to at least a dozen, probably 15 general assemblies. I joke that she's been to more assemblies than many teaching elders. And she is so involved and so attuned to these things, she loves the church with me, that not only does she come with me, that's a lot, right? She's sitting in the back and I get texts. Why is that guy making that motion? And isn't it out of order? <laughs> now I'm not just a warmed father, I'm a warmed husband. That's my love language. <laughs> Are you ready to spend and be spent to be a churchman, to love the church for whom Jesus died? Now is the time. Not next month, not next year. Now is the time. The church is worth your sweat, blood, and tears. Because Jesus believes the church is worth it. He died that she might be his bride. Brothers, be Presbyterian. Love the church. Love her Lord. Serve your King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you
this morning with great gratitude for what you have done. Lord, we know that we are frustrated so often by things that happen in our church and in our presbytery and in our assembly. We're frustrated by news of things that we hear or things that we think we have heard. Lord, we ask you to give us patience. You'd give us endurance. To know that you have promised us that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. We know the end of the story. God wins. We trust you, Lord, with the things that are most precious to us. That includes your church. This we ask in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. <laughs>